attention to God's Word. My name is Tim Owens. I'm a pastoral resident here at Sovereign Grace Church. And if you are just joining us for the first time, or if you've been here the last several weeks, but you need a, a refresher, we're in the midst of a series preaching through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, in the original Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. And chronologically, just as a recap, chronologically, they represent the last two historical books of the Old Testament. They describe events that took place over about 100 years from 538 BC when the Persian Emperor Cyrus first decreed that the Jews could return to Jerusalem from Babylon. And they go all the way to the end of Nehemiah's work in approximately 430 BC. Now, the two books together, they tell the story. They give us the only biblical picture we have, uh, besides the the minor prophets, of the post-exilic people of God. And it tells a story of a physical and a spiritual rebuilding project. Now, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon over 100 years before, so they had to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. But they also had to rebuild something else. They had to rebuild their spiritual identity as the covenant people of God. Now today, we come to Nehemiah chapter 10, which is right in the middle of five chapters that represent the climax of the whole story. So these are five chapters where everything is as it should be. Five chapters where we see what spiritual renewal and revival and covenant community are meant to look like. So let's read the passage together and then we'll pray and start. Now, we're not going to read all of chapter 10. Uh, Let's start with the last verse of chapter 9. That's chapter 9 and verse 38. Then we're going to skip the list of names and we'll pick up again in chapter 10, verse 28 and read through the end of the chapter. So let's read this together and we'll pray and again. Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And now jumping down to chapter 10 and verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, 
the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Father, every time we come to the Holy Scriptures, we are aware that we need the help of the Holy Spirit if we are to understand and apply this to our lives. So we ask again that you would send your Spirit to soften our hearts, to open our ears, to open our eyes, to hear and receive what you have to, to tell us from Nehemiah chapter 10 this afternoon, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. In 1985, the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, they paid $10 million to an art dealer from Basel, Switzerland, to purchase a Greek statue known as a kuros. Now, the Greek kuroi, they were meant to capture the essence and vitality of youth. And I don't know if you can see the picture. I mean, I think they get it. Yeah, the essence and vitality of youth. I'm not sure. Maybe that was true for the Greeks in the 5th and 6th century BC. Um, but very shortly after purchasing this statue, experts began to question its authenticity. And there were three main reasons that they questioned whether or not it was real. Uh, the first was that the sculptor uh, apparently used a blend of techniques that would only have been used over a period of about 100 to 150 years in ancient Greece. So the thinking is, if a sculptor used all of those techniques in one statue, he or she must have lived a long time after these original styles were being used. Now, secondly... The marble that the statue is made from was found to have originated on the island of Thassos, and that's in northern Greece, and they have great marble. But the problem is, is that there's no real record of sculptors exporting statues from Thassos in the 5th and 6th century BC. Thassos wasn't a center of Greek art during those days. And now most importantly, uh, they discovered that at least one of the letters 
that the art dealer in Basel, Switzerland had used to substantiate and prove the history of the statue. The letter was proved to be a fake. They showed it to a German forensics expert, and the forensics expert discovered that the postal code on the letter didn't come into existence until decades after the date that was on the letter. So it was a fake. Now, this was a huge deal in the art world, a huge deal. So the founder of the board of directors, the first board of directors of the Getty Museum, the founder quit. He left his job over an argument about the authenticity of this statue in 1984. And then the Getty took the extraordinary step in 1992 of actually flying the statue to Athens, Greece, and inviting 19 of the world's foremost experts on Greek art to analyze this statue to decide, is it real? And they were unable to come to a unanimous conclusion. If the statue is real, then it's one of only 12 complete Kuroi in existence, and that makes it pretty nearly priceless. But if it's a fake, then it is one of the best fakes in the history of art. Uh, art experts say that the subtlety and skill used in carving this statue is such that if it's a fake, it places the artist, the sculptor, it would make him or her one of the best sculptors in the world today. That's how good the fake is. Now, there's such disagreement about this that the sign, if you go to the Getty and look at the statue, the sign on the statue, in front of the statue, still says, this either comes from 530 BC or it's a modern fake. That's what the official sign says. Okay, now I find it really interesting, 530 BC. That's, just, that's right in the middle of the time period we're discussing in our text today. These statues were being made right when Nehemiah and Ezra were doing their work. Now, it's easy for us to appreciate the value of authenticity in the art world, where something could be worth millions, or if it's a fake, it's worth nothing. But today, our text deals with something that is much more valuable than authentic art. Our text deals with spiritual authenticity. You see, the Bible is concerned with the genuineness of our faith. 1 Peter 1.7 says that genuine faith is more precious than gold. So how do you know if your faith is genuine? How do we know if our faith is real? If we're not just putting on a show or going through the motions or pretending to be a Christian. Nehemiah 10 give us, gives us a, a living illustration of something that God's word teaches is one of the first evidences that our faith is real, that it's genuine, and that is the practice of repentance. If we had to summarize the main point of the chapter, we could say it this way. Genuine faith in God produces repentance. Genuine faith, real faith, it produces something in us. Faith produces a certain kind of evidence in the life of the believer. You see, the art experts who are examining the Getty Kuros, they were comparing it to something real. They were comparing it to a standard. They were comparing it to the 11 real Kuroi 
Okay, so authenticity or, or genuineness, it can only be measured against a standard. We need to have an idea for what is good, what is true, what is beautiful to compare to. So authenticity apart from a reference point doesn't mean anything. This is so important that the world's idea that we can be true to ourselves or that we can be authentic and genuine apart from any real knowledge of who we were made to be in the image of God, any real knowledge of our God-given identity and purpose, that is a fool's errand. It is a heartbreaking chase after the whims of our hearts that have been deceived and twisted and poisoned by the fall. But what happens when we come to God? God, he opens our eyes to see who we really are and to see who he really is. Then we see the ugliness and the evil of sin and the goodness and beauty of God's ways. And when we see that, when we really come to believe it, what we do is we repent. Now, repentance is a churchy word, but it's very simple. It's not hard to understand. Repentance is when we turn away from our own plans for our life, our own thoughts, our own ways, our own perspective, and we commit to follow God's ways for our life. And genuine faith will always produce repentance. Our text gives us two main points today. One, the foundation for repentance in chapter 9, verse 38. And two, three attributes of true repentance, chapter 10, verses 1 to 39. Now, we're going to spend most of our time on point two. We're going to explore this rich chapter, this detailed picture of what real repentance looks like. But first, point number one is crucial for us if we're going to approach the topic of repentance from the right perspective. So let's spend some time in the last verse of chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 38. This is point number one, the foundation for repentance. Let's look at verse 38. Because of all this, now stop. We have got to pay close attention when the Bible gives us a reason for what it's about to say. When the Bible is going to tell us to do something and it gives us the motive first, when it says you do this, but you do it because of something else, we have got to slow down and make sure we understand what came before the because. Because we are really good at doing good things for the wrong motive. Doing good things on completely the wrong basis in our hearts. And if we approach chapter 10, if we approach the topic of repentance on the wrong basis, we are going to end up in a very painful place. So because of all this is a real important phrase for us. This is actually in the Hebrew Bible. It's not the last verse of chapter 9. It's the first verse of chapter 10. And that places everything in chapter 10 in a very specific context. We need to remember what has happened for the children of Israel over the last couple of weeks leading up to this moment if we're going to understand what repentance is. So this is the 24th day of the seventh month. We know that from chapter 9, verse 1. And a lot of things have already happened in the seventh month. If you've been tracking with us over the last couple of weeks, we know that the first day of the seventh month back in chapter 8 was the Feast of Trumpets. That's, that's only three weeks before what we're about to read. Okay, then we know that they celebrated the Feast of Booths on the 15th day for a whole week from the 15th day to the 22nd day of the seventh month. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. That was only four days 
prior to the events of chapter 9 and 10. And then the events of chapter 9 and 10 all take place on the same day. So there is an important rhythm that's emerging from chapters 8 through 10 that we must be aware of. On the first day of the month, what happened in the Feast of Trumpets? Well, they began reading from the book of the law. Ezra stood up on a platform made for the purpose, and he read from God's word, and the people were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sin, and they began weeping. Ezra read for six hours, and they're weeping. But then the leaders said, stop. You can't only weep. If you only weep, then you won't faithfully represent the goodness of God to the watching world. You're, you're, if you only weep, then you won't be faithfully showing that we serve a God who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. So they said, stop, you're weeping. You need to go have a feast. You need to rejoice. You need to celebrate a God who is willing to forgive. So they go celebrate. Now, 10 days later, chapter 8 doesn't mention this, but 10 days later would have been the Jewish holiday of atonement, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, one of the most important events on the Jewish calendar. Chapter 8 doesn't mention it, but it is inconceivable in this context that the children of Israel did not celebrate it. They are studying God's word. That's the whole point of chapters 8 through 10. They're studying God's word and molding their life to God's word. So between the, between the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths, they have the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, they're commanded to fast, to put on sackcloth, and to mourn for their sins. So this is the famous moment where the priest, he pronounces, ceremonially pronounces all the sins of Israel and places them on the head of the scapegoat and sends the scapegoat out into the wilderness to die on behalf of the people. The scapegoat bears their sins away. Okay, so that's the Day of Atonement. Then the 15th through the 21st, they're rejoicing again. The Feast of Booths has two points, one, to thank God for the harvest, and two, to remember God's saving the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. So they're rejoicing again in the Feast of Booths, and now we come to the 24th day, and they're confessing their sins. But they're also, as Ron preached last week, confessing God's great mercy. You read through their confession, and you're struck by something. Their confession isn't only about how they failed. It's also about how God has been faithful in the midst of their failure. Do you see the pattern that's emerging here? Weeping over sin, rejoicing in God's mercy, mourning over wickedness, then feasting and dancing and delighting in God's grace. Folks, these are the ingredients that lead to healthy confession and repentance. Grief for sin and joy in our Savior a right view of sin makes us want to turn away from sin. A right view of God makes us want to rejoice and love God and trust his word and his ways. When we see sin for what it really is, and we see God for who he really is, it produces a genuine, a sincere repentance that is not legalistic or performative in nature, but flows out of a heartfelt love for God and hatred for what is truly despicable and wicked. In short, repentance, as it turns out, is the most concrete and authentic response to the truth, the truth about who we are and who God is. So now that we have at least a glimpse, a reminder of where the children of Israel have come from over the last three weeks, 
now that we see the, the ground of repentance, where repentance comes from, now we can give our attention to chapter 10. Now we can give our attention to what does repentance look like? And that brings us to point number two, three attributes of true repentance. The first thing that we're going to see in chapter 10 and one of the first signs that we believe what God's word teaches us about the deceitfulness of sin is that we are going to embrace accountability. That is the first sign of true repentance, is that you embrace accountability. Look at verse 38 again. Because of all this, now we just talked about that, because of everything that's happened over the last three weeks in their lives, grief over sin, joy in God's mercy, because of all that, what are they going to do? We make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, our priests. And then we have 27 verses of names, the people who signed. Now, why, why did God include this in Holy Scripture? A long list of names that we don't know who they are and we can't pronounce most of them. Why is this here? What are we meant to learn from this? Well, the most obvious reason for making a covenant and writing and memorializing the names of those people who signed it is so that those people can be held accountable to do what they say they're going to do, that they will follow through on it. They are saying, we will put our names on this list. We will, we will put our agreement to this covenant out in public to hold ourselves accountable. This is similar to the reason that we make our, our marriage vows in public. This is similar to the reason that the baptism ceremony takes place in public before the rest of the church. And in fact, baptism is a perfect example because in baptism, we're symbolizing that we are turning away from our old life. You're buried with him in baptism and you're raised to what? To live a new life in Christ Jesus. This is a public portrayal of repentance. I am turning away from the way I used to go, and I'm committing to follow the Lord. And why do we do that in public? Why do we do it in front of the whole church? At least partially because we want our church family to keep us accountable to that decision. The willingness to go public, to publicly commit to follow God's ways, this is one of the first things that happens in our heart when we come to the Lord Jesus. We're willing to tell people about it. We're willing to tell people, I used to think this. I used to do that. I used to party this way. I used to think that this was the right way to go, but now I don't. And I'm willing to tell you because I've been forgiven and loved and accepted by a God who sees all of that sin, who sees every dark corner of my heart, and he loves me anyway. I've been accepted on the basis of his free grace, and so now I don't have to hide from you anymore. I can be honest, and I can ask for help in the areas of my life where I need help and accountability. This is one of the first evidences of true repentance. We're willing to embrace accountability. Don't you see how this is the necessary and fitting in to everything that's happened in chapters 8 through 10? What if they had stopped short of committing to obey God's word? What if they decided to go home right after the Feast of Booths? If they said, man, it's so great to have a good cry over my sin and to just party and celebrate with my family and friends. And you know what? Now I'm just going to go back home and live the way I've always lived. No. What would that have shown? That would have shown that they do not really believe the words of the law that Ezra had read to them. 
That would have shown that they're more interested in making themselves feel good and putting a band-aid on their conscience than they are in actually walking out this new life with God. But aren't we tempted to do that all the time? We feel convicted over sin. We're emotionally moved during a sermon or a community group conversation or a personal quiet time with the Lord. But we stop short of applying it to our lives. We stop short of taking the next step and confessing it to a friend and asking for prayer, accountability, and help, or changing our plans and habits in any way to conform to God's word. But in chapter 10, the beauty of chapter 10 is that this was not, they're proving that this was not empty emotionalism. What they felt in chapter 8 now has arms and legs. They're willing to do something about it. These people have been brought to genuine faith in God. And they're willing to hold themselves accountable to walk in his ways. So that is the first attribute of true repentance, embracing accountability. But what exactly are they holding themselves accountable to? Is this a general spirituality? Are they holding themselves accountable to be nice to each other? No. Their commitment has a very specific content. And that brings us to our second attribute of true repentance. They are committed to obey all of God's word. Look at chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. So, parentheses, everyone, okay? They join with their brothers, their nobles, and they do what? They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses the servant of God. What are they holding themselves accountable to? Well, first, they enter into a curse. The curse is a significant aspect of this commitment, even if it's something we would rather not meditate on. The exiles are reaffirming the curse that is embedded in the Mosaic Covenant. We read in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 28 that the the Mosaic Covenant requires perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. And if you do not obey perfectly, God has said he will remove his blessing and the curse will fall. Deuteronomy 28.45 says that the consequence of disobedience is destruction. We cannot turn away from passages in our Bibles that read like that. And of course, Moses didn't make up the idea of a curse on Mount Sinai. The curse of the Mosaic Covenant, it's merely an echo of the curse. The curse that plagues all of us to this day, in this room, in this city. The curse that was pronounced by God himself in the Garden of Eden when the first man, Adam, broke God's word and brought the curse of death on us all. Now, we're going to say more about this curse in a few moments. But for now, I want you to notice that when the exiles enter into the curse, what they're doing is they're demonstrating an awareness of the true seriousness of sin. Do you feel that this afternoon? That is how serious our sin is. 
It merits the curse of death. And something else they're doing is they're demonstrating a willingness to re-enter the covenant on God's own terms, not their terms. God said that sin deserved a curse. And these people are saying, we're entering back in to your covenant, Lord. And if that means entering back into the curse, we will do that too. They're coming to God on God's terms, not trying to come on their own terms. This is, this is evidence of good faith in them. Now look at the second part of their commitment. It's not just a curse that they're entering into, but also an oath, a promise. But a promise to do what? Look again at verse 29. We enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. They promise to walk in God's law, to conform their lives to God's word. But notice how they emphasize the point down at the end of verse 29. Moses, the servant of God, and to, so they, they promise to walk in God's law and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Did they leave anything out? Okay, when was the last time you read through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Okay, all his law, all his commandments, all his rules, all his statutes. This is hundreds of years after Mount Sinai. It would have been really easy for them to say just the most important commandments, not the rules and statutes. But that's not the heart of true repentance. True repentance, when you have truly been convicted of your sin and you have truly seen the beautiful goodness of your God and Savior, you embrace the entire word of God for your life. This is complete submission. There's no negotiating. There's no caveats. There's no weak talk about only obeying the principles, but I don't have to obey the actual rules, that I'll leave behind the things that are culturally embarrassing or personally distasteful to me. No, they embrace the entire word of God. This is a key attribute of repentance, friends. The very basis of our faith Follow me here. The very basis of what we do when we come to God in Christ is that we confess that our own philosophy of life, our own thoughts, our own feelings about the world, our desires, our opinions, our choices, that those things, by, in doing those things, we have completely screwed ourselves up. That's what we're admitting when we come to God. And we're saying, God, I can't go my way anymore. I want to go your way. Give me your way. Give me your whole word. In that moment of humility and contrition, oftentimes, right when you come to Christ the first time, you are a thousand percent ready to embrace God's whole word. But over time, we begin to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like the most. We start to downplay the parts of the Bible that make us feel most uncomfortable. Brothers and sisters, be on guard against that temptation. Remember what happened in chapter 8. What is it that has the power to pierce our hearts and cause us to grow in godliness? It's the water and bread of God's word. If we start to silence God's word in the passages that make us feel uncomfortable, we will stop maturing in our relationship with Christ. Full stop. I am aware that that's a big statement, but in the very places that we ignore, silence, 
press pause on God's word, that's where our soul can't grow into the next place that God has for us. Proverbs 3, 5. We all love Proverbs 3, 6. But Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. When there is a conflict between our understanding, between our philosophy of life, our thoughts, our desires, our perspective, and God's word, the heart of faith says God's word wins. And we submit. So the first attribute of true repentance is that we embrace accountability. Secondly, we commit to obey all of God's word. And now we come to the third attribute of true repentance. And that is paying specific attention to areas of increased temptation. This is verses 30 through 39. And I want to look at verse 30 together. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, why is it necessary for them to say this? In, in the verse just above, in verse 29, they made it very clear. Every rule, every statute, every command, we're going to obey it all. So then why do they step down and, and highlight one of God's laws? Why do they pick one law off the list of the Mosaic law and say, especially God, we will do this one? Why is there a need to mention this or really even to have verses 30 through 39? Haven't they already said it all? We're going to obey God's law, okay? Well, verse 30 should sound familiar to us from our study of Ezra. So we know from Ezra chapter 9 and 10 that the returned exiles, they, they've struggled with this part of God's law. Okay, they, they have compromised their, their faith by being willing to marry people who are actively worshiping false gods. They, they've, they've been inviting idolatry into the covenant family by marrying people who do not want to worship the one true God. Okay, so as we continue to read all the way down to verse 39, it becomes clear what they're doing here. The people are highlighting areas of specific temptation. They're saying, yes, we're recommitting ourselves to obey all of God's law, but we need to pay some special attention to a few areas where we have currently been failing, a few areas where we know we are experiencing special daily temptation. We need to say more about that. We need to put more attention there. And they list four main areas. We don't have time to dig into every single one of these things. We could preach a whole sermon just on these specific areas. All of these things apply to us in various ways. But the four moral areas, areas what it looks like to be God's covenant people, were verse 30, the spiritual purity of marriage. So we can think about that for just a second. We have much to give attention to in the area of the spiritual purity of marriage ourselves. Two, in verse 31, honoring the Sabbath day. That's the first half of verse 31. The second half of verse 31, let's look at that together because this is a little bit of an interesting comment and I want to make sure we understand it. Second half of verse 31, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. This is a massive commitment. Uh, the, the second half of verse 31 ties back into Exodus 23, 10 and 11, and also to De Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 11. 
In those passages, landowners are commanded not to harvest the crops of every seventh year and also to forgive all debts every seventh year. Okay, just think about that for a second. Every seventh year, you can do some math. That's just over 14% of your income if you're in agricultural society. 14% of your income set aside to support the poor. And I know what you're thinking. That's not 10% tithe and an extra 4%. That is 14% on top of the tithe. Because the tithe they're going to deal with in the next couple of verses. Verses 32 to 39. So that's the level of commitment that these people had to the poor and their society. I'm just going to leave you with that thought. Finally, verses 32 to 39, providing financially for the work of the temple in every single way. A third of a shekel every year, first fruits of the ground, first fruits of the trees. We're going to take care of the firewood for the altar. We're going to make sure the priests and the Levites have enough food to live every single way. As I said, we could spend a lot of time digging into the content of these specific moral commands, but my concern today is to focus on how these verses are functioning in the broader context of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Everything that the people did on the 24th day of the seventh month, how do these verses fit in? And it's this. The people had their hearts, their consciences had been pricked. They had been cut to the heart by the word of God. They were aware of the ways in which they specifically fell short of the law of Moses. And they wanted to make sure. They wanted to make plans. They wanted to commit in these specific areas to obey their Lord. They will not stop short of obedience. They will not just generally affirm that the whole word of God is good and true. But they will show that they believe it by committing to obey it in the areas in which they are weakest. This is what the heart of faith does. If we really believe what we say we believe about sin, that sin is deceitful and dangerous, then we will plan and strategize and pray and seek advice about the areas of specific temptation in our lives. Look at verse 34. I love verse 34. It's so practical. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots. They cast lots. They just rolled the dice. For the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed, year by year. Okay, father's houses, times appointed, year by year. So what they did, they made a spreadsheet. Okay? They cast lots, and they made a spreadsheet, so they knew which family's responsible to bring the wood for the altar every month of the year. Okay, sometimes we can over-spiritualize repentance. We can, we can be sweating and thinking like, oh, okay, please, I hope that I can obey next time. Well, what we really need to do is take practical steps to set ourselves up for success. We just need to delete that one app off our phone. You, you know what app it is. If, that, if, if the Lord just touched your heart, then you know, okay? We need to call a friend from community group and schedule a time to go to coffee and share with them. I've been struggling in this area. Will you pray for me? Will you help apply the gospel to my life in this area? We need to sit down with our spouse and make sure that our finances reflect God's concern for the poor and God's concern for providing for his church. These are practical steps that we can take. One evidence that we really believe What the Bible says 
is that we will make every effort to avoid what is evil and seek what is good and holy. So friends, that is Nehemiah 10. God's given us an entire chapter to show us what repentance looks like. When we truly repent, we embrace accountability. We recommit ourselves to obey all of God's word. And we pay special attention to the areas in our lives of unique temptation. Now, stop for a moment and honestly assess yourself. Honestly assess your heart response. Does a message on repentance typically leave you excited to repent? You can be honest. Does it leave you full of energy and joy and excitement, ready to take hold of repentance in a fresh way? No. All too often, these texts can just fall on us like a burden, like a load of bricks. We like walk out thinking, okay, not only do I struggle with sin, but now I don't repent well enough either. You, you might also be thinking, pastor, I've tried this before. I have tried over and over and over, and I have failed again and again. I've tried to recommit myself to God's law. I don't know if repentance really works for me. My flawed and broken efforts don't seem to heal me from the curse of sin. Friends, if that's you this afternoon, I want you to know you're right. You're right. Your repentance alone, repentance in and of itself, cannot save you. It does not have the power to break the curse. Those of you who are reading this chapter closely, there should be a question on your mind. What about the curse? Oh, it's all good and right to say, hey, we failed in the past, God, but now we're going to take an oath. We're going to do better next time. We're going to obey. We're going to obey the whole law, every statute, every command. But what, what about the curse? I've already failed. The curse is coming for me, whether I repent or not. What does my repentance even matter in light of the curse that I deserve? If you've been paying attention to yourself, then you know from painful experience that our efforts will fall short of the standard of a holy God. And make no mistake, the moral of this story, the end of this message, is not a lessening of the requirement of God's law. God's law requires perfect obedience. Not, I tried my hardest. Not, I'll do better next time. The law requires perfection. That is the only way to be accepted by a holy God. So how can we beat the curse? How could it possibly matter? How does chapter 10 matter? Well, let's receive the good news of Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 together, and let these words just wash over you. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You know it. I know it. We feel it. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Jesus took the curse on himself. Folks, everything in Nehemiah 10 applies to us today, except for one thing. If you are in Christ Jesus this afternoon, if you have placed your faith in the Lord of glory, the curse does not apply. (laughs) This is very good news. Do you see how this radically changes our relationship with God's law? How it changes our perspective on the whole topic of repentance? Apart from Christ, the law is beautiful but terrible. All it can do is show us how we failed. It can only show us that we deserve the curse. But in Christ, the terror and the condemnation and the curse of the law has been removed because it was placed on him. In Christ, only the beauty and goodness of the law remains for us. We are set free from the curse and empowered by the Spirit to repent and to grow in holiness. Apart from Christ, repentance is motivated by fear of the curse. And ultimately, that is a hopeless exercise. In Christ, repentance is motivated by faith. And by God's grace, it leads to real growth and change in our lives. Repentance does not, and in and of itself, repentance alone cannot save us. But faith in the crucified and risen King can. True repentance is the fruit of faith in Christ, not the root. It is only by experiencing the gift of free grace that we can be set free to practice what we see in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. It's only when we know that we've been accepted and loved in spite of our sin that we're free to be honest about our sin And this is the key. It is that humble honesty about our sin. It's when grace is operating in our lives, when we see the goodness of our Savior, and it leads us to be honest about our sin and to practice what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10. That humility is what invites God's power into our lives to do the work of change. You see, God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. This genuine faith Genuine faith, the air we breathe, is joyful confession and repentance over and over again, over and over again. You and I can be honest about the areas where we need help, accountability, prayer, focus. Why? Because God has already saved us in Christ Jesus. So yes, you are called to live a life of confession and repentance. But healthy confession and repentance grows out of the gospel of grace. The worship team can come on up. I have two main points of application for us today, two things that I want to encourage you to consider as you walk out of here. And the first one is this. Have you been living in fear of the curse? Is your walk with the Lord right now more conditioned by fear of failure fear of judgment, fear of condemnation, fear of the curse? 
Are you approaching, when you approach the, the topic of confession and repentance, does it land on you just like a load of bricks right now? Or are you approaching repentance and confession from the joyful position of faith in a Savior who loves you in spite of your sin? The first point of today's sermon, for some of you, the first point of today's sermon might be the only point that you need. The, the because of this, the, the, the reason why we come to repent, the grief over our sin that God's word exposes, but also the joy, celebration of goodness, of the goodness and generosity and grace and love of our heavenly father. These are the things These are the ingredients that create healthy repentance. And you might need to go back to Nehemiah chapter 8 and sit there for three weeks before you come back to Nehemiah chapter 10. You might need to go back to the foot of the cross and meditate upon the great love that God has demonstrated for you in spite of the ways you've rebelled against him. You might need to sit there for three weeks like the children of Israel did before you decide to recommit yourself to follow the whole law of God and seek out accountability and help for your areas of temptation. We need gospel-motivated repentance in our church, not legalistic repentance in our church. So I ask you, honestly, Are you more dominated by fear of the curse or by the love you've received in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Second, do you need to repent of something? Maybe you are walking in the good of the gospel. Maybe you came in today fully in tune with the fact that Jesus Christ took the curse on his shoulders. He lived a perfect life. He fully satisfied the Mosaic law, died in your place for your sins. Maybe you're living in the good of that. You're rejoicing in God's goodness to you. But you have become aware of an area of your life that doesn't fully conform to God's law. Maybe it's something you're doing that you shouldn't do. Maybe it's something that you should be doing that you're not doing. If that's you, This afternoon, can you take the great joy and confidence that's ours in Christ, the acceptance that we feel before God, and let that propel you to take the next step, to take the next step of obedience and growth and holiness, to call, pick up the phone and call someone and ask for help and accountability, sit down with your finances and make the change that needs to be made to do the thing that God has laid on your heart to do so that your whole life can come into good conformity with his holy word. Oh, I pray that you'll do that if that's you today. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful to have this time to meditate together on your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be present to set us free from fear of the curse, to live in the good of the gospel. And I pray that our joy our gratitude, our love for you that's stirred up by the love you demonstrated for us will result in a wholehearted commitment to bring every area of our life into conformity with your good, pleasing, and perfect will. Father, I pray that you would be heavy on the hearts and minds of each of us as we leave. If there's some step that we need to take today so that we can walk in obedience with what we've heard from your word in Nehemiah 10. In Jesus' name, amen.